Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 29. And uh, for those of you who have been following along since we've been uh, reading through the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings, it might be hard to believe that we are still in the plagues that are coming on Egypt and that the people are still in slavery in Egypt even after all that has happened, all that Pharaoh has seen, and yet still there they are. I will let you know we're nearing the end of that. (laughs) We're getting close, but today um, we continue with that. Um, Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do... Thank you again for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for your word which you have given to us. God, we hear so many words all day long, every day. God, help us to be shaped more by your word than by all those words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 10, verses 21 through 29. Says, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So, Mark, so, so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present the Lord to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God, and until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Turning then to our gospel reading, Mark chapter 14, 1 through 11. Here we are also nearing the uh, climax of this story as Jesus has um, been coming to Jerusalem one final time. And in Mark Mark 14, 1 through 11, we get a, a beautiful scene but also accompanied with some ugliness. Here goes. It says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. 
Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> well, I'd mention if, we, uh, if you've been following along since we started reading through Exodus, you'd kind of be surprised as maybe that we're still in the plagues. And <clears throat> I'll also say, if you have not been following along as we have been going through Revelation, then the passage we get to today um, may throw you. It is a passage that has some very well-known parts in it. In fact, some of the most well-known stuff from all of the book of Revelation is in the passage that we're looking at today. However, it may not mean what you think it means. Um, in fact, one of the things that we have been talking about throughout the book of Revelation, this whole series we've been doing, uh, started last June, is um, we've been making the point again and again that the book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible for a reason. It's the 66th book because it's got 65 prerequisites. And the more that you are familiar with everything going on in the first 65 books, the better you will uh, be at understanding what's going on in the book of Revelation. And the less familiar you are with those, the more you're just going to make a mess of it. <laughs> and a lot of mess has been made about the passage that we are um, looking at today. And typically, because it is heard by itself, away from the whole rest of the context of the whole Bible, the whole rest of the book of Revelation. And, um, and so it's the kind of thing where you just grab words and phrases and run with it. We're going to try to not do that. Um, anyway, that said, let's read. <clears throat> and when you first hear it, you may be hearing it completely out of context, so be patient, and we will uh, we'll try to give it the context it needs. It says, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. All right. You've heard of some of those things before, right? Some of these phrases um, are not 
new to you. Uh, and yet, is the that number 666, some people get really like superstitious about this number. And to me, what comes to mind uh, when I get that is... Um, is you know the TV show The Office? Michael Scott at one point said, "I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious." <laughs> Which is not how that word works. But <laughs> but when we get to this number, and we'll we'll get to it here in a bit, uh, we don't need to be superstitious about it, and yet we do need to be not stitious, <laughs> but wise. That is what this whole passage is about. Is this calls for wisdom? Wisdom is what we need, and wisdom, unfortunately, is in, is in short supply often. Okay, we need some, we need some more context, don't we? Because we start with just a second beast coming out of the earth, and we're like, well, how is this a second beast? Does that mean there was a first one? Yes, we looked at that one last week, and in fact, the one we looked at last week, we spent a lot of time looking at uh, what happens in a vision back in the book of Daniel, because if you're not familiar with what's going on in the vision of Daniel, that one makes no sense in Revelation. But in, Revelation, but in Daniel, he has this vision of these beasts that are coming and just trampling on the people, and one after another after another, and it just seems to get worse and worse. And then you have this uh, one like a son of man who shows up and who approaches God himself and has given all this authority and glory and honor and people worship him. And he is the one who is the king over an eternal kingdom. And of course, Daniel's like, what in the world is this about? And he's told that basically these are these different kingdoms, that each of these beasts represents kingdom. You say, why does a beast represent a kingdom? As my friend uh, Matt Halstead puts it, he says, revelation isn't isn't warning the church to steer clear of Godzilla. It simply employs beastly imagery as a way to creatively communicate the inhumane and monstrous character of corrupt earthly powers. Do you hear that? I will say it again. <laughs> because sometimes we hear of this beast in Revelation, we're like, oh, we've got to watch out for this beast. And if I see anything that looks like that, if I see something that's like part lion and part a leopard or whatever, then that's what I've got to watch out for. That's what the message... No. He said it's... Uh, not warning the church to steer clear of Godzilla, it simply employs beastly imagery as a way to creatively communicate the inhumane and monstrous character of corrupt earthly powers. Which, of course, he says, in John's time was the Roman Empire. In Daniel's time was Babylon, and then also Persia. And you get, um, but you get this same beastly character this corrupt, monstrous character of these earthly powers. And that's what we see the Son of Man in Daniel in contrast to. Though all these earthly powers that are corrupt, and you go, we're suffering under the hands of all these things. Is that just how it's going to be forever? And the vision that Daniel's given is basically, no, that's not how it's going to be forever. That there will be one who is the son of man who will rule over the earth like people were supposed to rule from the beginning, but they haven't been. People have been ruling more like beasts, putting themselves first and trampling over those who have been entrusted to them. 
And so instead of ruling like a good shepherd would rule over sheep, they rule over the sheep more like a wolf would rule over the sheep. And so instead of ruling like a person, they rule like a beast. That's what we looked at last week with the first beast. So now we have this second beast that shows up. Uh, This is part three, actually, because we had the dragon that shows up first and tries to fight against... um, (laughs) fight against the, the plan of the gospel itself with Jesus' birth, uh, death, and resurrection, but he loses. And then we see this uh, beast out of the sea that uh, we are seeing is uh, these political entities, these governing powers. And then we see the second beast that comes out of the earth. And it's given also some imagery to it. It says it had two horns like a lamb, So when you hear that it has two horns like a lamb, what are you supposed to be thinking of when you hear like a lamb? Who else in Revelation is like a lamb? (laughs) Who has been depicted as a lamb throughout? It's Jesus, right? And so we see this beast come out of the earth and it looks like a lamb and we go, oh, well, maybe we should follow this. It has two horns, horns being a symbol of power. And it comes out of the earth and it looks like a lamb. And then it says, but... It spoke like a dragon. Now, when you hear like a dragon, who else has been referred to as a dragon? (laughs) Satan, right? So if you see something that looks like Jesus but speaks like the devil, (laughs) you supposed to follow that? No. (laughs) No, no. So what this is talking about is false prophecy. Those who speak in the name of Jesus, who try to look, it's the wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing. It's those who um, will claim to be speaking for God, and yet the message they have is actually the message of the devil. And this is where it gets crazy as you get uh, into what this looks like. So what is... Let's back up a sec. What is it that the, uh, that the true people of God, when they are speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit... You know what they always are pointing to? It's Jesus. That Jesus is the one who alone is worthy of all worship and praise and honor and glory. And you see this in, um, like when you first open the Gospels and the first people that it mentions that are filled with the Holy Spirit and you see them pointing to Jesus, including John the Baptist when he's still in his mother's womb. (laughs) He's filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, and yet when uh, his mom and Mary get together, she says, my my baby's jumping for joy. (laughs) Pointing people to Jesus even before he's born. But this is what we see. And as you go through uh, the rest of the Gospels and Acts and, and following, and you see people who the Holy Spirit comes into their lives, and they start pointing people to Jesus. Jesus is who we ought to be praising. Jesus is who we ought to be worshiping. Jesus is who we ought to be giving our lives to. And this is where this false prophet, uh, you can recognize the voice uh, that speaks like a dragon because it doesn't say to worship Jesus. Here's what it says instead. It says, It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. 
Wait, what? You worship the first beast. What was that first beast again? It was the corrupt um, earthly powers. Right? It's this corrupt earthly powers. Talk about the context of the whole Bible, but there's there are false prophets throughout uh, the the Bible. Often, you'll see this um, again. The kingdom of Israel, there'd be like somebody who is a true prophet who's trying to remind people who God is and what He's done for them and how they ought to be living their lives in line with that and in relationship with Him. But then there are all these false prophets who are often the majority, and the false prophets are saying, "No, no." Don't listen to that guy. Don't listen to God. In fact, we will speak on behalf of God. We will speak on behalf of uh, the gods that matter. And you know what? Um, Come to think of it, I think what God is saying is the same thing that the king is saying. We should just do that. We should do whatever the king says, and we should bow down and give our lives to him. This is a familiar pattern, right? Throughout the Bible. This is... um, And whether they use the name of Baal or some other uh, false god or whether they even use the name of God. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 32 when the people have come out of slavery in Egypt and they get to Mount Sinai and God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt and the people are like, we want an idol. And so Aaron's like, okay. And he makes this golden calf for everyone to bow down to. Do you remember what he says about it? He puts this golden calf in front of everybody and says, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. He's identifying God himself with this idol. Not good. Really not good. And this is the same thing that we see over and over again. We'll see even people who will use the name of God but point to something else. Looks like a lamb. Speaks like a dragon. And so when we get to the book of Revelation, what is the context? What is it we see in uh, the beginning of the book of Revelation? We see all these letters to all these churches, right? In chapters 2 and 3, it's these letters, these seven churches throughout Asia Minor. And in the time that John is writing, every single one of those uh, cities that he wrote to had a temple in it that was built to worship the emperor. Think about this. You're living in a city as a Christian. But just down the street, there's a temple for worshiping the emperor, the Caesar of the day. What do you do? What do you do as a Christian? Do you go along with that and worship Caesar as well? Do you sing the praises and, the, uh, and seek to glorify the Roman Empire with all that you are? Because that's the pressure, that's the temptation, and that's what everyone around you is doing. And it would be very hard in a society like that to resist, and especially when not only do you have everybody doing this, but people who are claiming to speak for God, that yes, this is what God wants you to do. And so John writes, and this is where it's revelation, right? It is a revealing. It is a looking behind the scenes at what's really going on spiritually here. 
If you go, well, I'll just bow down a little bit to Caesar, and then otherwise I'll you know, still worship Jesus. It's like, mm, no. <laughs> What's really going on here, spiritually? And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And this is... And this is where this warning comes in and the needing to have wisdom. Uh, We're given language here that looks a lot like Daniel chapter 2, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing down to the statue that's built that everybody's supposed to bow down to, showing that they are uh, putting the earthly king above all else. They say, no, we can't do that. Same kind of thing here. And then it says, it also forced all people, great and small, this is verse 16, uh, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads, so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Uh, So these are the, the two things we do need to talk about, and uh, we're going to take them in backwards order because the mark, it says, is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So we've got to look at what that number is. And um, kind of a straightforward reading of this, you go, oh, well, that's saying don't let anybody write the number 666 on your hand and your forehead. That would be bad. <laughs> okay, maybe it's saying something more than that. Um, there's a book that is uh, called, I think it's called, Bearing God's Name by Carmen Joy Imes. Great book. The whole idea of the book is we have, in the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is not to take the name of the Lord in vain, right? And a lot of times what we understand that to mean is don't use God's name as a swear word. And what she says is, yeah, it does mean that, but that's just a small part of it. It's so much bigger than that. In fact, here's what it's actually about. And so she goes through how even in uh, ancient Israel, the priest would wear the name of God, holy to the Lord, He'd wear this on his head. Uh, and so he would literally carry the name of the Lord wherever he went. And but what he's saying is uh, at Sinai, what it say, this commandment is saying, God has already said to the people, I will be your God. You will be my people and you will be a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Like this is a a whole nation of priests. Every person is therefore supposed to be representing God in all they do. Uh, He has basically put his name on them and said, you are mine. And so it's as though spiritually they have been branded (laughs) like an animal where it shows who you belong to. And so he says, you have my name on you. So when you go out into the world, you represent me by what you do. So don't take the name of the Lord in vain. As you go out, you are carrying the name of God with you. Make sure that you do that responsibly and carefully and intentionally. Don't do that in vain. Same kind of thing here. When this talks about uh, the, you know, the, the number and we're like, oh, this means don't write this number on your head or hand. It's like, okay, yeah, maybe it does mean that, but it means so much more than that. Because what this uh, number is about, there are two main things it's about, and I think they're combined. Um, The first is that uh, Nero, 
It was one of Caesar's at the time. He'd been uh, problematic, Caesar, uh, for Christians in particular. And, uh, and if you spell his name and use the way that they did letters and numbers back then, uh, the Nero Caesar, if you figure out that number, it comes up to 666. And so people have said, yeah, this is talking about him. In fact, so much so that when Revelation was uh, being passed around and copied into places where they spelled his name a little bit differently, the number is actually 616 in those manuscripts because Nero Caesar spells comes up to that number. And so you go, okay. So back then, people understood that's who we're talking about. So there is that. But there's something else too. And that is, uh, have we seen the number seven come up in Revelation at all so far? Like a lot of times. It's all over the place, this number seven. And when we see the number seven, it's this idea of wholeness or completeness or perfection, right? And this idea of seven being the wholeness and completeness comes from uh, creation itself in uh, Genesis 1, where you get um, the seventh day, everything has been Um, like a a place has been made for everything. Everything's been put in its place. It's all as it should be. And God says it's very good. But just, uh, so when we think of, well, when we think of God and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're talking about perfect perfection. In fact, we saw earlier on when singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That uh, they didn't have a way of saying, like, holy, holier, holiest. The way you do that is by saying, holy, 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 and holy, holy, holy. <laughs> so by saying it three times, it was like the most. And so, seven, seven, seven would be the most perfect. Well, who is the most perfect? <laughs> right? It's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But then we have this other kind of parody trinity, this false trinity. Where you have um, the dragon and the two beasts, we have the um, the devil itself, the state, and those who uh, are uh, false prophets trying to get people to worship the state. And in that, it says the number six 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 being. Short of seven. A number actually meaning imperfect. It's actually the number of mankind. You'll see that it says here, um, you know, it's the number of a man. And then you see, oh, there's a footnote. It says, or is humanity's number. That's the two ways to translate this. And I think that's really cool that it's written in a way that it could read as either a person, like Nero Caesar, or as humanity's number. As in people were created on day six. And it has been the number of people as not only the day they were created, but also as a symbol of the imperfection of people. We read about King David in the children's sermon. And we read about how the people loved David. He was a great king in so many ways. But then, of course, it makes a point. Was David perfect? No. Was it okay for the people to love David? Yeah. Should they worship David? No. (laughs) 
Why? Because he's a man. And he is imperfect. And he is a sinner like the rest of us. And so uh, when, when John is warning us of these things, he is helping us to have this wisdom. It's not just like, oh, can you figure out you know, the, the number, uh, say word play, but it's number. Is it number play? I don't know. Not, not can you figure that out. He says you can figure that out. But wisdom, throughout the Bible, wisdom is talked about as something that we need. And it is not just uh, knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing how to apply what's right in this time and place. How do I walk now? (laughs) How do I live now? What is the right thing to do in this situation? And so you'll see in the book of Proverbs, a book all about wisdom. You'll see one proverb that say, seems to say one thing, one that seems to say the opposite. And you go, well, which is it? Which is right? And it's like, well, it depends. <laughs> sometimes this is the way to do it, and sometimes this is the way to do it. And that's what wisdom is, is knowing which is which. And here he says we need wisdom. This calls for wisdom because we will be, we will be told to worship the state. We'll be told to worship individuals that are part of the state. We'll be told by people who are claiming that this is from God, that this is who we should bow down to. But wisdom says we can, we can honor our leaders. We can be respectful towards them. We see this kind of thing in Romans 13. Here's how we are to live uh, under these authorities that God has put in place, we are not to worship them. And we are certainly not to identify ourselves um, primarily with that. See, in, uh, in this day, uh, when John is writing to these churches, who are surrounded by emperor worship. Everybody's saying the emperor is divine. That it's God himself who is ruling over us in this way. And therefore, of course, you would go along with worshiping the emperor. And the Christians have to say, no, we're not going to do that. So we have a choice. And the choice is do we follow God or do we follow the beast? What do you do? And this is what it's talking about when it is um, saying it forced those uh, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads. This is not the first time a mark on the heads and hands have been talked about in Revelation or in the whole Bible. There have been other marks, and it's uh, and they're not visible. These are spiritual marks. This is um, a way to kind of mark out who is who. 
It's, a, it's an identity marker. It may show up by what you do. But like in uh, Deuteronomy, the, the Shema itself, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and uh, strength. His commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. You hear this? That the word of God was to be on their hands and on their heads and in their hearts and in their houses. It would be on their tongues. Not as tattoos. <laughs> not not uh, tied there, but it was to be about, like, it's to be the whole of yourself. It is to be, when you are deciding what to do, the word of God is to be what's directing you. When you're talking, it's the word of God that ought to be coming out of you. When you're thinking, it ought to be the word of God that is informing your thoughts. When you're doing things with your hands, it ought to be the word of God that is directing what you are doing. This is what it means to have this on your head and on, uh, on your hands. Now, what happens here? What is it that we're being warned against? Well, what was that number 666 all about again? It's about this fallen humanity, this complete fallen humanity that is epitomized in somebody like a Nero Caesar. Of course, he's not the only one. You may have heard the expression, uh, the king is dead, long live the king. That means even though this particular king has died, the kingship continues on in the next king. We see the same thing with Nero. He dies, and yet that opposition to God rule continues in the next Caesar. And we see the same kind of rule uh, throughout history and the present, and the future. And what this mark is, is people saying, what I do, what's at the core of my being, is going to be informed by the ways of this world and the rulers who rule like beasts. That's what's going to determine who I am. The things I think about are going to be the words that are coming from the beastly leaders and those who want me to worship them. The things I talk about, it's going to be all that. The things I do, it's going to be informed by the ways of man, which we know are fallen and imperfect. The not being able to buy and sell thing, you know, what's that about? At that time and at the day, we know that people were facing persecution because to stand up against emperor worship was to put you at odds with the rest of your society. There were uh, the trade guilds where if you wanted to participate in the economy of the Roman Empire, you had to play ball. And part of that means you gotta, you got to bow down to the emperor. You gotta offer a little pinch of incense. You gotta, you, you, you gotta do the things. It's what we all do. You're one of us, right? And the Christian has to say, I can't do that. 
I say, well, then we're not doing business with you. And so the person who has the, uh, the mark of God on them, the mark of the lamb, which we've seen early in Revelation, and we'll see it again actually next week, that person may not be able to buy or sell in um, that kind of environment. And here's where we need, this, <laughs> we need a good word because you hear all this and you go, okay, yeah, we're not supposed to follow um, man. We are supposed to follow the lamb. We're not supposed to follow the lamb that speaks like a dragon. We're supposed to follow the true lamb who gives his life for us. We're not supposed to give all the glory and honor to those who say we're supposed to give glory and honor to them. No, we're supposed to give glory and honor to the one who alone is worthy of it. We say, but if we do this, that puts us into some scary positions. But here again, it's where my friend Matt Halstead has some wise words for us. He says, um, speaking of the emphasis in this book of Revelation, one of the questions that's continually being asked is, who is in charge? Is it the beast? Is it the kings who are in league with the beast? This is the truth. The big reveal of Revelation, the big reveal is that the lamb is in charge. In God's economy, the slain lamb is more powerful than any monstrous beast, no matter how ferocious it is. Again, the point of this story is not to spread fear among Christians. To the contrary, he says. The goal is to identify the early Christians' fear and then remind them that they actually have nothing to fear because Jesus, the lamb, is stronger than the beast. We're going to see this in the next uh, several sections of Revelation. So we've just seen the dragon and the first beast and the second beast, and we go, ah, there's so much. It's so freaky. <laughs> but the point is to point out the environment that we're in and then to show us uh, how the slain lamb is stronger than any beast, as threatening as that may be. There's so much more that could be said. We're out of time. (laughs) Uh, And so may you have wisdom to discern um, the true lamb from the lamb that speaks like a dragon. That you would have wisdom to discern the difference between the perfect that deserves the glory and honor and worship and praise and the imperfect that tries to steal it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.